hey, that's awesome. This room's full of people. <laughs> you know, it's so nice, you know, hearing clapping and stuff. That was awesome. You know, we should have had a clap track yeah. when this place was empty. That was really nice to... Uh... We got a laugh track for Rick's announcements. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it is so good to be together and to see all of you today. And um, I am just, uh, just really thankful for our church family and servant-heartedness and all the people who showed up today to help organize things. And, you know, we're, we all have, you know, tons of different opinions about different things and masks and all those kinds of things. But just we're the body of Christ. We love each other. And we just don't make a big deal out of things that are insignificant. And so I was back there wearing a mask, steaming up my glasses while I was singing. It was, it was kind of uh, kind of cool. Um, Anyway, this is uh, just very cool. So um, this morning we are going to be looking at discipleship. And I just love uh, reading um, the Gospels and thinking about how did Jesus disciple people? What did he actually do? And so we've, we've heard a lot of Jesus' teaching on discipleship. We've seen Jesus call disciples and kind of what it means to follow Jesus. And in the next um, few weeks, we're going to be looking at what did Jesus do to train his disciples. And I think this is awesome because we have an opportunity, we have a front row seat to see how did Jesus train and what was he training people to do? And then we get to think about, okay, so then how does, if that's what Jesus did with his disciples, what does that mean about what I should be learning and how I should be making disciples? And so I just think it's really cool. I love it. Uh, even though we weren't there, we get to read the Gospels and see what happened. So um, anyway, so I have a question for you. So, so today we're going to be talking about a, a disciple's task. And, and it's interesting that the first thing that Jesus tells his disciples is he talks to them about their message and how they preach and how to respond when they're accepted and when they're rejected. And the title today is that disciples proclaim, they don't pander. Like you just think about our culture and the way that people respond to peer pressure. If you go back 50, you know, 50 years ago, what kinds of things did people say? What kind of positions did people hold because of cultural peer pressure? And you think about today, what do people do and say because of social pressure? Isn't it awesome that as believers, 50 years ago and today and 100 years ago, the message is not different. What God calls from us is not different. What we proclaim is not different based on the opinions of the culture around us. And, and we're, we're going to see that this morning. So I said I was going to ask a question. Here's a question for you. Have you ever thought about what it takes to convince a person to follow Christ? You ever thought about that as you, as you have friends, as uh, just people that you know, your neighbors, uh, people that maybe you're sharing the gospel with, friends, people that you work with? And just think to yourself, if a person's not a believer, what can I do or say to get them into the kingdom of heaven? Which is what we all want, right? So uh, I want to just start by um, just considering the foundation that um, the Bible lays for sharing the gospel. And we're going to see this uh, in our passage, but I want to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 18, chapter 1, verse 18. 
it says this. Now think about this. This is a general statement about everybody. And it says, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. You ever shared the gospel with an unbeliever and just had them go, man, you are a fool. That's crazy. Why would you believe that? It goes on and it says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the word of the cross, the gospel is foolish to some people, but it is powerful to others. So let's think about who these people are that it's foolish to. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, it goes on a few verses later and it says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, um, this is now going to talk about Jews and non-Jews. And just in case you don't know, you are either a Jew or you are a non-Jew. Like, that's, those are the options. So this kind of covers everybody. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs. So, so the Jewish people are saying, you show me a sign, do a miracle for me, prove yourself to me. Um, it says, Greeks seek wisdom. They're saying, convince me. Uh, give me some logical arguments. Uh, convince me to believe what, what you say. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So everybody's demanding things, and the people who make demands will reject the message. But it goes on, and it says this, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, when, when God's working in your heart, you will see miracles and you will respond. That's one of the things we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point People may demand signs, but signs never convince anybody. The, the Jews in Jesus' day saw these amazing miracles. The Pharisees saw dead people brought to life. They saw lame people healed. They saw demon-possessed people return to their right mind. They, they saw undeniable miracles, and it convinced none of them. And, and all the wisdom... For, for people, never convinced anybody. But here's the deal. If God is working in your heart, then you will see undeniable miracles and you will believe what they point to. If God's working in your heart, then you will hear rational, reasonable arguments and you will believe them. The difference between people who come to know God and people who don't come to know God, it is personal. It's their own moral condition, but it is God working on the heart. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then Romans 1.16, it's what Paul says, and it's what we all believe. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The message that saves 
is the gospel message. And the problem is when Christians or when people in the church start to think, okay, how can I pander to people? What do people want? Let's give people what they want. What are the things that people are demanding? Let's change the gospel. If there's people that say, well, this is unacceptable. No, I won't believe this part of the gospel. No, that's unacceptable to me. Well, okay, let's try to get more people saved. All the things that people don't want to hear. Let's just remove those things until people are happy. And you want to know what's going to happen? Number one, nobody will ever be happy. You can't remove enough to make anybody happy. And number two, as you remove things to make the gospel acceptable, it's no longer the gospel. So now when you finally whittle it down to what people will believe, and so then they believe that and they say, okay, that to me is acceptable. The moment you do that, it actually does them no good. There's no power in the gospel. There's no more salvation left because you've taken God's truth and you've changed it to be acceptable to somebody who's unwilling to accept God. See, there's people that will accept all kinds of things. Uh, they want all the things that God has to offer, but they're unwilling to bow down and worship and follow Jesus. Okay, so that was a long introduction. Uh, but you know what? Let's close because the message is done. No. You know what? It is amazing when, when we come to grips with the fact that God is the one who saves people. God's the one who works in a person's heart. It's so free. All we do, it's so freeing. All we do is read, what does the Bible say? I'm going to pray that God will give me opportunities I'm going to pray that God will help me say the right thing in the right way, that he'll, he'll allow me to be considerate and loving and gentle. But the bottom line is, I just, I read what this says, and then I tell people. It's so freeing. I don't have to figure out, you know, what's, what's the magical chant that's going to work for you. No, we just take the gospel and we communicate it to people. Confidence to just know that God's never wrong. And if I'm on God's side, I'm good. Um, and, and if there's a million people against me, um, me and God is a majority. Actually, God's a majority by himself. Um, the loyalty. The fact that you and I can just say, you know, I do love you to another person, but I don't need you. Uh, I need God. My loyalty is actually with God. And if you hate me, that's okay as long as God loves me. Uh, where, where's our loyalty? And, um, and, and it, just, it allows us the freedom to just study Scripture and say, what was Jesus like? I want to be like Jesus. And just reflect Jesus' character and what we're doing. So um, just a, a definition of proclamation and pandering. And I realize, and it, this was not on my mind when I chose this topic, but pandering has a legal definition. That's not what I'm referring to. That's related to prostitution. So, so that, that is not, I, I was thinking about that. I should have maybe picked a better word, but let me explain the definition of pandering and what I mean by it. So proclamation is just to declare something, just to announce it. It's, it's a public or an official announcement, especially one that deals with the matter of great importance. It is a clear declaration. One of the things about proclamation 
is it has nothing to do with the opinion of the person that you're making the proclamation to. It's a statement of fact, and people might like it or not like it, but it does not matter. Pandering, on the other hand, is to indulge, to gratify, to satisfy, to give into, to please other people by doing or saying what they, you think they want you to do and say. Now, I just, I don't know what your political persuasion is, and it actually doesn't matter for this statement. What do politicians do? They take polls to figure out what should I say. Now, what they say doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what they're going to do or what they believe, or what their convictions are. And we just see politicians who one day are totally convinced of this, they take a poll, and now all of a sudden they're totally convinced of this. That is not how believers function. Pandering is driven completely by the desires of the audience. And so anyway, that's, hey, what do you say we jump into, shall we jump into Matthew and actually uh, read this? We're going to see three important things today. The first thing is that disciples are Christ-centered, not man-centered. We're, we're secondly going to see that disciples learn from, follow, and obey Jesus. And we're going to see that disciples are those who proclaim truth. Uh, so those are our first, our three things that we're going to see this morning. So let's jump into Matthew. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And um, we're going to just see Jesus's authority. The fact that Jesus is the center of everything. Christ-centered, not man-centered for those of us who are disciples of Christ. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says, and he called to him his 12 disciples. So Jesus is calling them. First of all, he called them, and then he called them to himself, and he's going to give them instructions. And it's his 12 disciples. Jesus owns them. Uh, the Bible tells us, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that if you're a Christian, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Everybody says things like, oh, this is my body, I can do what I want with it, or just all kinds of statements that go along that, with that. It's actually not your body. If you're a believer, then you are a Christian, and Jesus owns your body. It's not your mind. It's, you're not in charge of anything. You don't actually own anything. Everything belongs to Christ. We are Christ-centered. Uh, he is the one that we give glory to, and so he's going to call his 12 disciples and it says that he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And um, one of the things that we need to think about is that there are lessons for us today from this passage. But what, what Jesus is doing is in some ways unique. Jesus has 12 disciples, and you and I are not one of Jesus' 12 disciples. There are disciples, and we're all disciples with a lowercase d, but there were 12 disciples who were unique. And they were people that God spoke specifically to. He gave them specific instructions. We're going to see that he tells them, don't preach the gospel to Samaritans or, or non-Jews. Only preach to Jews. Like, he's going to tell them that here. And there are some lessons that we need to learn from that. We need to think about that. We need to understand why he told them that. But 
the message for us is not only preached to Jews. So we need to be able to read Scripture, understand uh, what, what was being said, what did it mean to the disciples, and how did it apply to them, and also how does it now apply to us? And uh, it can apply differently to the disciples than it applies to us, but there is always an application. So here's what's going to happen is Jesus is going to send his disciples out, and it says here that he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And there's a lot of people who read that and they just say, hey, we're disciples too. So that means that if, if we're functioning the way God wants us to, that I can heal every disease and I can heal every affliction. And God wants everybody always to be healed all the time. And that's actually not true. And if it was true, we could just grab a hold of some of Jesus' disciples and say, go throughout the world and go heal all the COVID-19 people. we got a hospital over there. There's people dying in it. Go. We, we could have some people go heal Ray. Ray wanted to come to church. And we could just say, go over there, heal Ray. Ray, come to church. Like, I want him to be able to come here. And, but you know what? This was, Jesus was doing this uniquely for his 12 disciples. And here's why. What has Jesus just done in Matthew chapter 8 and 9? He's gone around healing people. He's gone around casting out demons. And who did Jesus heal? He healed everyone. He healed everybody's affliction. And now he's going to take these 12 people and he's going to train them and he's going to send them out and he's going to give them the message he wants them to have and he's going to allow them to do everything he could do. What does that do? It makes you go, oh, Jesus did this. Now all the people who are following him are doing this. What, what does it do? It is a sign that these are Jesus' spokespeople. It's why they write the New Testament. It's why we look at their words as though they are God's words because they are God's words. And Jesus was providing evidence of that here. And so one of the things just for these disciples is that Jesus was preeminent in their life. And that is the first step to being a disciple. It was then, and it is today. Jesus is number one. He is preeminent. We love Jesus more than money, more than comfort, more than our family, more than any earthly future. As, as believers, Jesus is number one. We recognize that Jesus is the one who initiates. He has authority. He sustains. He's, he empowers. His disciples didn't do anything in their own power. They did what they did because Jesus allowed them to. The second thing is their desire. Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. And you want to know what the disciples did? Well, when we read about it, we're going to find out they went and did what he told them to do. Um, their desire was to please Jesus. And for you and I, if we're disciples, our desire is to please Jesus. That hasn't changed. This is what the Apostle Paul said. So whether we are at home, and what Paul means by that is not if we're home or at church, like, you know, you're at church and there's other people at home. He's not saying if we're home. He's saying that whether or not we are here on this earth or whether we are away, he's saying if I live or if I die, my aim is to please Jesus. And so that's, that's his aim. I want to just make another comment about signs and miracles. 
Did you know that signs and miracles are only one evidence that a person is following Jesus? And actually, it requires other things. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, 2, God tells Israel that if a prophet comes and does real miracles and then tells you to worship another God, that is God testing you. Just because a person does a miracle, a sign, or just because they trick you into something, signs verify God's messengers, but signs have to be also accompanied by the right message and the right lifestyle. And so false teachers, uh, they do fake signs. Um, in the book of Reve in Revelation, it talks about during the tribulation, there will be real miracles to try to deceive people. And how, so how do you know who you should follow? Uh, well, for the disciples, they had it. We know we can follow them. They did signs, they had the right message, and they had the right life. And those are the things that we look for. And I'm not one of the 12 disciples, so I don't have to raise people from the dead. But you can measure my message and my lifestyle. You know, that's one of the things I think about with so many false teachers. Um, and you find out that there's pe these people that are tricking people and they're robbing people. And these news stories comes out about these faith healers that are doing all kinds of things that are wrong. And I just think, you know, you don't actually need any of the stories. Uh, you don't need to find all these people that they've set up to come to their meetings and pr pretend that they're, that they're crippled and then the person heals them and they get out of their wheelchair and they run around and carry their wheelchair with them. And, and then you have videos that this person could do this before. You don't actually need any of that. All you have to do is listen to their message. It's always an unbiblical message. And, and you look at their lifestyle, what they're like. Like you don't actually need to do all that research all you have to do is read your Bible and you know. So here's the second point. Jesus is preeminent. The second thing is this, is that di disciples learn from, follow, and obey Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. We'll just look quickly at the disciples. It says, the name of the 12 apostles, and a disciple is an a learner, and an apostle is one who is sent with a commission, somebody who uh, uniquely represents the one sending them. And again, we are all disciples and we're also all apostles, but with a lowercase a. We are ambassadors of Christ, but we're not apostles like the 12 apostles were apostles. Um, in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 to 26, when they were replacing Judas, they said, what is the requirement for a person to be considered to replace Judas. You want to know what it was? You had to have been a part of Jesus's ministry from his baptism to his resurrection. You had to see him be baptized and you had to witness his resurrection. Um, is there anybody in this room that meets that qualification? Yeah, so we know who the disciples and the apostles were and there aren't any of those in that same way. So when we look at this list, I'm just going to read you the list and just say a couple things, and then we'll, we'll move to the next section here. But the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. You know, Peter is always listed first in every single list. He has this explosive personality. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. It's kind of interesting. Jesus has these, these apostles, and you know, the, 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 the passionate individuals, the ones that always got themselves into trouble, those are the ones that Jesus puts first in almost every list, the, the Bible writers. 
So Simon Peter, who's Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. So Andrew's not always second. A lot of times he's fourth. Um, but think about that. You have these two men, and one of the brothers is more, more prominent than the other. When, when Jesus' disciples are together and he's going to do these unique miracles, sometimes he says, hey, Peter, James, and John. Those are the next two names that are going to come up. Peter, James, and John, come with me. And Andrew gets left behind. Like, think about the dynamics of the family there. Uh, James and John are brothers, and they're, they're sons of thunder. They have this temper. They, they wanted to call down fire and burn people up for, for rejecting Jesus. And Jesus says, um, you got a lot to learn. So we've got Peter and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and, his, and, and John, his brother. By the way, that John wrote five books of the Bible. So Peter... Um, supervised Mark to write the Gospel of Mark. So Mark is often known as the Gospel of Peter, and then Peter wrote First and Second Peter. John wrote the Gospel of John, First John, Second John, Third John, and Revelation. So that's, that's who this, this individual is. And then Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, you know, you, we all know him as Doubting Thomas, but he was also the one when Jesus was going to heal Lazarus that says, okay, let's go with him even though we're going to die. We forget that part, and we just call him Doubting Thomas. And Matthew, the tax collector. You know, in none of the other gospel writers' lists do they mention that Matthew was a tax collector. It's one of the things I think about from a cultural perspective. Um, they looked at Matthew, and they loved him, and they saw that Jesus had worked in his life. And they didn't say, we're going we're gonna to remember you. We're going to label you by your past. We're going to label you as a social outcast. So when they're listing Matthew, they just call him Matthew. But Matthew humbly reminds himself and reminds his audience, I'm Matthew. I'm the tax collector. I'm the one everybody hated. I'm the one that nobody would talk to. It's an expression of humility, and I think also for him to just say, hey, look, if Jesus could save me, he could save anyone. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. So Simon was like, he was a rebel. Simon the Zealot, like it was his goal to uh, overthrow the Romans. He was like one of those militant uh, revolutionaries. And Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus, and Judas is always listed last. Now, here's the interesting thing in this list. You think about all those people. It includes Judas, and Jesus sends them all out, including Judas. That's an amazing, like, there's more that we could consider in that, but that is just amazing. And he sends them out, and he gives them instructions. Look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim, that's what he tells them to do, as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. You know, they give, Jesus gives instructions, and they obey these. Um, so disciples, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to love Jesus. When, when we think about leaders in our church and we're looking for leaders and disciples, who do we want to say should be an elder? Who should we put forward to, to, for God to use? 
you know, this is actually it. It's a question of does this individual, do, we want to look for people that love Jesus. Now, how do you know if somebody loves Jesus? Well, if you can read the screen, you know. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We look around and we just say, who are people that know what Jesus says and then do what they know? That's who we're looking for because that's how you know if a person loves Jesus. Do you want to know if you love Jesus? It's easy. When you find out what God wants you to do, do you do it? Um, so Isaiah 66 too, but, but to this one, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The disciples were people who obeyed. As believers, we need to be people who obey, who have reverence. Not people who look at the Bible and, like our culture, says, no, I decide what's right. I will tell you what you should say. I choose what I believe and what I don't believe. No, people who humbly bend their knee and say, God, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever you say is true, whatever you say is right, I don't determine truth. You do. I don't know everything. You do. And so these disciples, Jesus gave them specific instructions. He told them where to go. He told them how to go. He told them what they should say. And he told them that his power would be with them. You know, Jesus was calling the shots. And when you think about discipleship, that's what it is. Now, they went to the lost children of Israel, the lost sheep. Um, remember what Jesus did right before all of this happens? He closes chapter 9 by what? He gets them all together and he says, look at these people. Pray that God would send workers into his harvest. That compassionate heart, just saying, you need to pray that people will be reached. And then he says, right after that, okay, now go reach those people that you've been praying for. And this is a unique time because um, God's kingdom is being presented to the Jews. The Jews are God's chosen people. And so God, Jesus, comes to the Jewish nation, and Romans explains that the Jews rejected Jesus, and that became riches to the Gentiles. And I love, um, it's funny, Michael Williams said this, but I never heard him say it. I actually heard Rick. Rick's the one who told me he said it. And, um, and that is this, and it's true. It's that God doesn't have a plan B. Everything is plan A for God. It's not like Jesus came to the, to the Jewish nation and thought, oh man, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder if they'll reject me or accept me. That was God's plan, that they would reject him. Now, does that mean they're not responsible for it? Does it mean they didn't choose to reject Jesus? No, they are responsible. They did choose to reject him. But that was God's plan so that there would be riches for the Gentiles. But this is God going to the Jewish nation saying, I'm going to present the gospel. And then when they, some reject, some accepted. But it's, you know, the gospel is what? Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then what does it say next? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, how do you feel about the fact that most of you are the Greeks? You were not first, you were second. Does that make you feel like it's a little unfair? It's not fair. How come I was a second? How come I, how come I was a second choice? It was somebody else was, had a priority over me. What's with that? Well, he also talks about tribulation, punishment for rejection. 
And look what it says here in Romans 2.9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. For the Jew first and also the Greek. See, in that verse, I like being second. I don't want to be first in line. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God sent Jesus for the entire world, and it includes Jews and Greeks. And that's what, you know, there are so many people that would just look at this, that's not right, I don't think God should have done it this way. You, you want to know God's not taking any polls. He's not getting up and saying, how do you guys think I should do this? He does what he wants to do, and nobody has any say. Whether they think they do, whether they want to have say, nobody has any say. God says how it is. And we've, we just discover the truth, and then we honor it, and we obey it, and we follow it. And so, uh, disciples, obey. Now, let's uh, look at their message. The third thing we're going to see is that disciples proclaim truth. Disciples proclaim truth. Um, in verse 7, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. The lepers, not the lepers. <laughs> the lepers. Uh, so that's to proclaim. That's to make it known in public, to announce. You know, um, 2 Timothy 4.2 just talks about the, the job of the church. Um, discipleship, is. there's an intellectual element of it. We proclaim the truth. We teach people what Jesus says. There's an intellectual element of discipleship. There is a relational element of discipleship. Relationship is how you influence people. It's knowing people. It's caring for them. It's loving them. So it's influencing them. It's being an example. But there's also the relationship element of encouragement and just enjoying life together with people. So there's an intellectual element of being a Christian and a disciple maker and a disciple. There's a, there's a relational element of it and there's a service element of it. And uh, we need to remember though that the church, our, 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 one of our main things we do is proclaim. 2 Timothy 4.2 tells pastors, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience in teaching. Uh, in, in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture and exhortation and teaching. And I'm going to try to keep my sermon short, shorter. I'm trying to make them shorter. But, you know, it's like people will go to movies for hours, but when it comes to reading God's Word, they have a short attention span. There's actually something wrong with that, and I'm, I'm not campaigning that I should preach for two hours or three hours. <laughs> Thank you. It was very nice. I appreciate that. Colossians 1.28 reminds us what we preach. It says we preach, we proclaim and warn everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So we're proclaiming Christ. Now look at the manner. This is how he set, tells the disciples to go. And it's interesting when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus now tells his disciples to do, he taught them something, and now he's going to have them go experience what he taught them. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. You know, the Bible tells us that false teachers see godliness as a means of gain. I will do things for you if you give me money. And Jesus tells his disciples, um, you didn't 
you didn't pay for this. You didn't pay for what I gave you. So take the gospel, take what I've given you, and give it to people. There's this one preacher I know of who, um, you know, he, he, he has like millions of tapes and CDs and sermons. And he could make millions of dollars. Like if, if he just sold his stuff for 25 cents a sermon, uh, he, could, he could be a, a millionaire. And what he does is he tells everybody, you can copy anything that I've sent. I have no copyright. You can use everything I have. Um, and, and they do charge, like when people asked way back when they used to ask for CDs and tapes, they would charge for the cost of producing those things. But never did he get a dime. He told everybody it's free. And now that there's the internet, every single sermon is available to be downloaded for free. Um, there's another pastor I know in a similar area who's also well known. Um, five bucks a sermon if you want to download it. And what Jesus is saying here to his disciples, and I'm not saying it's wrong to sell books. It's not wrong for people to be paid for their work. But he's just saying to his disciples, you receive freely, give without charge. Don't ever confuse the gospel with money or business. Um, he tells them, he goes on, and he says in verse 9, Acquire no gold, silver, or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or, or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. You know what he tells his disciples? Go on a missions trip, but don't plan, don't plan for it. Don't prepare for it. Don't take anything with you. Now, what do you think the lesson is that? You, you think for a second about Matthew um, chapter 5 through 7. What did Jesus say that would relate to that? He told his disciples, Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. You know, the worried about food and clothing and how you're going to survive. And Jesus says, You worry about me, and I'll take care of you. So he sends his disciples out, and he says, Just go. And don't take anything with you. And they're going to learn that Jesus is going to provide for them. And so uh, they do that. It goes on and it says, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy, and worthy in it and stay there until you depart. It's kind of interesting. So um, he's building their faith. And then he just says, find worthy people and stay there. It's not that it didn't cost anything for them to go. It's not that they didn't need food. It's not that they didn't need shelter. It's just that Jesus said, go, and when you find a believer, let that believer pay for you. Go into their house, stay in their house, eat their food, and go minister to other people. Don't be distracted by trying to spread things around. Just find a faithful person and let them pay your way. And that's what they did. They went, they found faithful people. The body of Christ took care of them, and they went on and did their ministry. And then it says, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. That, that's God's blessing and care for the people that support the work of the ministry. And, it's, and, and he also is just telling them, focus on the people who are faithful. When you preach the gospel and somebody comes to Christ, don't run around focusing on all these people hate church, they hate Christians, they hate the gospel. Let's chase them and try to figure out how to make them happy. No, find believers, invest in them, build them up. And then how do you respond when you're rejected? This is interesting. Verse 13, 
But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So you go into a town and you're rejected. God's blessing and care is not going to be on the people that reject you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. He just says, you know, people want to reject you, shake your, the dust off your feet and go. I'll never forget this uh, person. is a friend of mine. I love him. He's so faithful. Everywhere we go, he shares the gospel with people. So he was a youth leader. He always shared the gospel. He would always, whenever he was with kids, he'd get them, he'd teach them how to share the gospel. They'd go around and he'd just share the gospel with people. <laughs> I'll never forget this day where we, we stop and we go to, we're eating food at a restaurant and he walks up to this table and there's this dad and his son. They're sitting there eating lunch. And he says, hey, would you mind if I talk to you about a relationship with Jesus Christ? He said something like that. And the guy looks up at him. He says, actually, I'm not interested. I'm trying to eat lunch with my son. And so he said, okay. And then he continued to share the gospel with the guy. And he's like, dude, I said I'm not interested. And it was an interesting conversation after that. When somebody says, I don't want to hear it, turn around and walk away. We, we don't try to force things down people's throat. We don't try to make people change. Jesus is saying, go. Preach the gospel. If people reject you, shake the dust off your feet and go. Now, this is interesting what he says next. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. One of the things that we need to recognize is that there are serious consequences in the life of anybody who rejects Christ. But it's not us that bring the consequences into people's lives. That's God's business. We preach the gospel. We pray for people. But when a person rejects, and this is an interesting thing too, when you think about the nation of Israel, do you know how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah are? So Genesis 19 talks about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's what happens. Two angels go to the city because it's so wicked, and they say, I want to sleep in the, in the I, I want to sleep. In the, in the town square. And um, Lot says, no, don't do that. This is a dangerous place. Come to my house where you can be safe. And every single man in the, in the town, old and young, shows up at the door, says, bring those men out. We're going to sexually assault them. And Lot says no, and they start to break down the door, and the angels blind these men. And they weary themselves after they've been blinded to try to find the door. Like, that's how wicked this city is. And you know what God says? You know what Jesus says? Um, judgment for those people is going to be bad. But you're God's chosen nation, and somebody presents the gospel to you, and you reject that, it's worse for you. Serious consequences when people reject the gospel. So for us... We just remember we're ambassadors of Christ. We go proclaim a message. We don't pander. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, you are preeminent. We love you. We want to please you more than anyone or anything else. Lord, pleasing you is our priority. I ask that you would help us to proclaim the truth in your name. Amen.